Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you for this evening, for this opportunity to come together, to study your word, to dig into your word, and to know you more, to, to see the revelation of your relationship with us, of your connection with us, and ultimately of what you desire to do through us to impact the world for the kingdom of Messiah. Father, I pray that as we dig into this study on the Ruach HaKodesh this evening, that you will speak through me, that you will speak boldly, and that you will reveal yourself even more so than we could have ever imagined. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen. All right, so this evening is the third session of our study, a Ruach Encounter. Um, we have, uh, I mean, it's been phenomenal so far, absolutely phenomenal. I've, I've really enjoyed it. We've had some great responses from uh, the podcast online um, and uh, people listening to that being blessed by it as well. Uh, but I want to, this evening we're looking at a very specific uh, kind of change of direction, if you would, in uh, our discussion on the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and the way that the Spirit operates uh, or interacts with us and through us. We've set up now where we've discussed uh, the Ruach from creation. Uh, the first session, the first week, we dealt with the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, in creation. Um, you know, it's not like all of a sudden God decided in Acts 2 that he needed one more part of himself, but that God has always existed as God, and that all of the, the aspects of uh, God, of the way he relates himself, reveals himself to us, have always been a part of who he is. He has not changed. We are the ones that seem to always be changing more often than not uselessly, um, but when God gets a hold of us, things go in a different direction. So this evening we are looking uh, now in a, a different light as we look at the Ruach HaKodesh and the way it moves from an individual to a multiplicity. Last week we looked at the Ruach HaKodesh upon Moshe, upon Moses, um, and the Holy Spirit, uh, the mantle of the Holy Spirit, the mantle of the anointing of God that, uh, that Moshe, that Moses operated in, and how he spoke to the nation of Israel through Moses, and so on. So this evening we will be looking at the 70 elders. Um, if you're unfamiliar with what that is, go ahead and open up to Numbers 11. We're going to dig into it in just a moment. But we're going to be looking at the 70 elders, and the Scripture tells us that a portion of the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh of the Holy Spirit that was upon Moses was taken and placed upon each of the 70 elders. And this is the beginning of what we see scripturally of the Ruach HaKodesh upon the masses, of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit upon those who follow the Lord, and a transition, it's a foreshadowing of what is to come or what was to come at that point uh, that we know as Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, going from a single individual or specific individuals at specific times to the entirety of the body of Messiah and the availability to, to us to those that believe in Messiah. So, Numbers chapter 11, if you'll go ahead and open up there. Beginning with verse 11, I'm uh, sorry, verse 1, as tends to be the case with a large majority of the Torah, the people were murmuring in the ears of Adonai about hardship. In other words, the people were grumbling and complaining. Uh, they were griping. They were less than satisfied with the scenario in life that they found themselves in. And when Adonai heard, his anger burned. The fire of Adonai blazed among them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. So Moses prayed to Adonai, and the fire died out. The name of that place was thus called Tabera, because the fire Adonai had burned among the fire from Adonai had burned among them. Uh, the grumblers again uh, among them began to have cravings. So Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, began to wail repeatedly, saying, "If we could just eat some meat." Now, notice, we don't skip a beat, right? Israel complains and grumbles against God, and instantly God becomes angry, and the fire of the Lord begins to rage, and it ravages or destroys, burns, damages the outskirts of the camp. In other words, God's saying, look, I'm not trying to kill you all, but I am trying to wake you up to the direction that you're going, that you're walking in the wrong way. And they go, oh, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, God, forgive us. God stops uh, the, the, the judgment, if you would, that is occurring, and then immediately afterwards they start to grumble and complain again, and they say, if we could only have meat, oh, remember the fish and the meats and all the grand foods we had to eat in Egypt, 
how quickly we forget just how rough things were in Egypt. And then we go down to verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. So Moses heard the people wailing by their families. Each man at the door of his tent, Adonai's anger became very hot and Moses was troubled. In other words, Moses recognized what was about to happen. So this time he says, verse 11, so Moses asked Adonai, why have you brought trouble on your servant? Haven't I found favor in your eyes that you laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Or did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom just as the nurse carries an infant? To the land you promised to their fathers, where can I get meat for all these people? For they well to me, saying, give us meat. I am not able to carry all these people by myself. The, loads, the load is too heavy for me. If this is how you were treating me, kill me now. If I found favor in your eyes, kill me, please. Don't let me see my own misery. So Moses is fed up. He's done. He's over everything that's happened. Anybody ever been there before? He's over everything. He could care less about Israel at this point. He wants to be free and clear of it. And he says, look, if I found favor in your eyes, just kill me. Get it over with. Like, don't let me put up with this stress anymore. I can't handle it. It's too much for me to deal with. Just rid me of their misery. Um, and then we go down to uh, verse 16. He says, Adonai said to Moses, bring me 70 of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their leaders. Take them to the tent of meeting so they may stand with you there. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the ruach, the spirit that is on you, and will place it on them. They will carry with you the burden of the people so you will not carry it alone. All right. Up to this point, only two people were allowed to go to the tent of meeting, allowed to go to the tabernacle, right? To actually physically encounter the presence of the Lord there. The first was Moses. The second was Aaron, the high priest. Uh, more, more specifically, the high priest, the Aaron, uh, the, the um, uh, Kohen Gadol, the Kohen, uh, the, the, the great priest, the high priest, uh, Aaron and his sons. That was it. Nobody else was allowed to go into the presence of the Lord only Moses and Aaron. And so here the Lord says, all right, you're right. There is way too much. There's 600,000 men. That means that there's as much as a million and a half plus when you add women and children in just that are blood descendants of Abraham. Not to mention that Exodus tells us that there was a mixed multitude that left with them. So you're talking this vast amount of people, as many as three to five million people total that are standing here grumbling and complaining. So one man is looking at this angry mob of upwards of 5 million people. Um, no wonder he's crying, just kill me now and get it over with, because they're going to do it either way it goes. Just kill me now. Um, and so God says, you're right, it's too much. Uh, bring 70 elders, 70 leaders, recognized leaders. That And notice the way he words it. It says, bring me 70 of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their leaders. So very specifically, whom you know the calling of leadership is upon, right? And we can go to Timothy and we can read in Timothy Paul's description of the calling of a leader and what a leader looks like and how they should live their lives and so on. So there's obviously this recognizable characteristic to a leader. And in this particular case, we're dealing with leaders. We're not dealing with the ultimate masses as we do in Acts 2, but we're dealing with specifically a leader. And so here he says, there, you will clearly see who these leaders are, who these elders of Israel are. Uh, bring 70 elders with you to the tent of meetings. I will meet with you there, and a portion of the ruach I've placed upon you, I will take and I will place upon them. So verse 18, now to the people say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because you will eat meat. Uh, for you welled in Adonai's ears, saying, If only we could eat meat, it was better for us in Egypt. Now Adonai will give you meat. And this is where we read at the end of this chapter the second account of the quail being brought in. Remember the first account, they cried about meat, and uh, you know it was what it was. The second time they cried about meat, God brings in quail, and a whole bunch of people die. Uh, so we, we see that here we have this account of the quail being brought in. But we go down to verse 21. It says, Moses then said, 600,000 foot soldiers, the people I am in the middle of, yet you say I'm going to give them meat to eat for an entire month. If flocks and herds were slaughtered, would they have enough? Or if all the fish of the sea were caught, would they have enough? In other words, Moses is saying, would they ever be satisfied? 
He's not saying, you know, 600,000 men, if we got every ounce of meat that, is, that it currently exists on the face of the planet, would they finally be satisfied? He's saying they will never be satisfied. They will never be happy. And verse 23, Adonai said to Moses, is Adonai's arm too short? Now you will see whether my word will come true for you or not. So let me skip down to the actual occurrence of the rock being placed upon the 70 elders. So we've set up why this discussion, the 70 elders, is here. Now we're looking at the actual account of the Ruach upon them. So Moses went, verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people Adonai's word. He gathered 70 of the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Adonai descended on the cloud and spoke with them. He took some of the Ruach, some of the spirit that was on him, on Moses, and placed it on each of the 70 elders. It so happened that when the Ruach first rested on them, they prophesied but never again. Now, I haven't researched into why this particular translation chose to use the words, but never again. But the Hebrew uh, in this passage can actually be interpreted two different ways. One is, it never happened again. But the more prominent way that it's translated and interpreted is, and it never ceased. So that the Hebrew can be translated either way, but the most prominent understanding contextually the way this goes is, is that the, they, the, the Spirit was placed upon them, they began to prophesy, and it never ceased. Now, why is it important that we notate the idea that it, it never ceased? Not whether or not it ever ceased with them. I think it's got more to do with the connection of the Ruach HaKodesh of the Holy Spirit, that when the Spirit moves, there is prophecy that occurs. Now, we have in the body of Messiah, especially today, and looking at the world around us and the way things are, when we talk about a prophet today in the body of Messiah, far too often we're speaking of a prophet with a misunderstanding of what a prophet is. All right? We're looking at a prophet as though he's a soothsayer, a foreshadower, a, foreshadow, a speaker of the future. But that's not scripturally what a prophet actually did. Now, there was some of a here's what's going to happen in the future discussion. But more often than not, when those here's what's going to happen in the future discussions come up, it's often followed by, and if you just return to the Lord, that will all settle and it won't happen. Uh, when we look scripturally at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, at Samuel, at any number of the prophets that exist in the scriptures, Zechariah, and so on, the one thing that a, a, a scriptural view of a prophet all have in common is this. A prophet says, thus says the Lord, and repent now and return back to the Lord. All right? The, a, a prophet speaks the word of the Lord speaks forth the truth. And I don't mean just like, oh, the Lord put this message on my heart. Um, you need to cut me a check for $100. Thus says the Lord. Yeah. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking he speaks the word of the Lord, which could be a direct message from the Lord, or it could be the word, the scriptures, the Bible. He speaks the word of the Lord. And in doing so, the purpose is to call people to repent, to return back to God in faithfulness, to return back to God, to make teshuvah, which is the, the Hebrew concept of repentance. Teshuvah is you're walking in the wrong direction, you realize you're walking in the wrong direction, you stop dead in, in, dead in your tracks and you turn around 180 degrees and you walk back to the arms of the Lord. That is what true repentance is. Far too often uh, as believers today, our idea of repentance is, oh, God, I messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, forgive me. Okay, cool. And we go on about our way doing the same thing over and over and over again. But that is not a true repentance. A true repentance is you stop that and you return to the Lord. And so a prophet, scripturally, biblically, when we look at the overarching narrative of the scriptures and we look at the context of the Bible of what a prophet is, a prophet is one who speaks the word of the Lord for the purpose of drawing people back to the Lord, of drawing people in repentance, of calling people to repentance, to faithful repentance to the Lord. Um, and it's important that we grasp that idea, that we understand that a prophet is not somebody that merely tells of what's going to happen in the future, but specifically calls people to the Lord. Because then we set this up as we move forward in this passage. Let me get my Bible to cooperate. There we go. So we move forward in this passage. Verse 26, two men, however, had remained in the camp. So keep in mind, everything that just happened occurred at the tabernacle, right? At the tent of meetings. This all occurred at the presence of the Lord where nobody else could be but these 70 elders, Moses and Aaron. And that was it. All of a sudden, says two men, however, had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the other was uh, Medad. 
the Ruach, the Spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but they had not gone out to the tent. So for whatever reason, they didn't quite make it to the tent of meetings yet. They hadn't quite made it to where the presence of the Lord was yet. But God is faithful. God said, give me 70 elders. Moses brought the name of 70 elders, and these two were on that list. They just quite make it. There's 68 were there, two were in the camps, and he still put the, the portion of the Ruach of Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, upon them. They were among those listed, but they had not gone out to the tent. Uh, to the tent. So they prophesied in the camp. They began to do exactly what the others did, but they did it in the camp, in the middle of the people. So all the others did it at the, the, in the presence of the Lord where none of the camp could see it. No wonder they weren't scared of it, right? And it didn't surprise them. It shocked them at all. But then all of a sudden, uh, uh, Eldad and Madad uh, started speaking and prophesying, which again, if we're talking about a, a repentance, a call to repentance, right? These are people who are grumbling against the Lord. These are people that are, are remembering back to the grand old days in Egypt, with a slight misremembrance of what actually occurred in Egypt and that it wasn't so grand. But they're, they're, they're grumbling against the Lord. And so here they begin to prophesy. And if we look scripturally at the contextual definition of, prophet, of a prophet, they are calling people to repent. No wonder they're getting scared. It says, a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Verse 28, Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua of all people, right? Of all people, Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses since his youth, cried out and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Now, let's real quick, let's think back to last week's uh, session in this, uh, the second session in the study. And, uh, and we talked about, as, as Lynn was speaking, we talked about how when the presence of the Lord fell, what is it that Moses did when, in, in early parts of Exodus when he saw the, the Ruach, uh, the, the Shekinah, the presence of the Lord, the divine glory of the Lord on the burning bush, and he heard the voice of the Lord come out? What is it Moses did? He covered his face. He hid himself from the presence of the Lord, right? And as we said last week, we know that there's a connection to, to Adam and Eve whenever we sin and we sense that the Lord is here. We recognize what the Lord's doing. We try to hide ourselves, right? It's like we can cloak who we are as though God can't see what we're doing and, what we're, and who we really are. When in reality, what God really wants us to do is be open and to be honest with him because he already knows the truth and he just wants to gently bring us back to himself. And so here, the, the nation, the, the camps of Israel begin to hear these two guys prophesy as the spirit falls on them. They become scared to death. And so Joshua comes running and says, look, Moses, you got to tell these dudes to stop. Stop this now. This is, in a, in a sense, this is similar on a national scale to Moses covering himself in the presence of the Lord. They are afraid of the presence of the Lord, just like they were in Exodus 19 and 20 when the voice of the Lord spoke from Mount Sinai. They were afraid. They cried out, Moses, go and get the word for us. If we hear his voice one more time, one more word come from the mouth of the Lord from heaven, we will surely die. And so here they're scared to death, and Joshua says, you've got to stop them, stop them now. And what was Moses' response? Verse 29, but Moses said to them, to him, are you jealous on my behalf? In other words, are you, are you jealous that they're going to take my role? What are you jealous about? Are you jealous that they're, they're going to lead people away from my leadership? No, not in the least. He says, are you jealous on my behalf? If only Adonai would make all the people prophets, and this is the catch, if only Adonai would put the Spirit on all of them. If only Adonai would make them all prophets, if only Adonai would put the Spirit, the Ruach, on all of them, then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. The very next thing we see is the quail brought in. Uh, as we look at this, as we read about this, as we understand this, what we're seeing is as Moses is saying, look, Joshua, don't get upset. First and foremost, we know this is Joshua's future because the, port, the mantle's taken off Moses to put on Joshua when Joshua becomes a leader of Israel and takes over for Moses and walks in Moses' footsteps, leading Israel into the promised land. But in the meantime, Moses says, look, I wish that this happened to everybody. And it's a, a foreshadowing. This whole event is a foreshadowing what is to come. This whole event, this whole narrative is a foreshadowing what is to come. We know that when Yeshua walked on earth, he operated in the Ruach HaKodesh, right? He operated in the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is his authority. He operated in the power of the Spirit of God. He spoke life into the dead. He spoke those that, that were unable to walk. He spoke a revigoration of their legs so they could get up to walk when uh, the, there were those that were, were stricken with, with demonic oppression and, and, and so on. He spoke that out of them. He cast that out of them because of the Ruach HaKodesh, the presence and the authority of the Lord upon him. And ultimately in Acts 2, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the Ruach HaKodesh was now put on a mass 
level for all believers, right? Just like we saw here with Moses and the Spirit is upon him, the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh, the mantle of the anointing, the Spirit is upon him, and it's put on a mass level upon the 70 elders. It's a foreshadowing of what would happen in Acts 2. It's a foreshadowing of there was one, Yeshua operating in the Spirit, and then all of a sudden the Spirit was available for all. Ultimately, the prophecy that Moses, who likely didn't truly understand that it was prophetic, but the prophecy that Moses is speaking, that all he longed, that all would, that Adonai would put his spirit upon all and that all would experience the presence of the Lord, the Ruach HaKodesh, ultimately that becomes a reality in Acts chapter 2. Not only in Acts chapter 2, where, where Jews and converts to Judaism experience the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh because of their faith in Messiah, but just a few chapters later, we see at Cornelius' house the exact same experience on the Gentiles. So not only, and notice Moses says uh, in, in uh, verse 29, he says, if only Adonai would put the Spirit on all of them, he doesn't just speak of the people of Israel. I think he's speaking prophetically of all. Now, he may specifically be considering Israel because that's his immediate reality. But prophetically, God is speaking of everyone. His desire is to put his Spirit upon all. But the qualifier for that to occur, the predecessor for that to occur... Is faith in Messiah, faith in the atonement, atoning blood of the Lamb, that we can be washed clean of our sins so that the presence of the Lord, which is His Ruach HaKodesh, can reside within us because then we are a clean vessel, a clean tabernacle for His Ruach. Now, what's really interesting with this is, is there's a correlating story. Anybody, uh, just real quick, can you think of a correlating story in the Brachadashah and the New Covenant writings of the New Testament uh, to this particular account? I mean, like literally exact numbers and everything. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Now after these things, the Lord assigned 70 others. And sent them, uh, they became shaliach, uh, shalachim, the, the sent ones, uh, the, the emissaries. And sent them out by twos before him into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he was telling them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then he goes on with instructions of how they were to uh, operate as they were out ministering and so on. Um, but then we go down to verse 17. Now, these 70 uh, shalachim, these 70 uh, emissaries sent out one's disciples of Yeshua, went out. Now, we know by what happens next, beginning in verse 17, that there was uh, the Ruach HaKodesh was upon them. The mantle of the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh was upon them. And we know this because of what happens in verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Master, even the demons submitted to us in your name. Now, it's one thing to speak the name of the Lord, the name of Yeshua, right? It's, the, it's one thing to say, in the name of Yeshua, I command, blah, 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 blah. It's another thing when the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh is behind those words. The mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh, the mantle of the anointing, I believe, just like with Moses and the 70 elders, and there's a correlating image here. The mantle of the, the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh was upon uh, Yeshua, was a portion was placed upon these 70 disciples, the 70 shalachim, the 70 sent out ones, the 70 emissaries here in Luke 10. And they went out and they began to speak life into people's lives. They began to cast demons out, and they began to prepare the way for the the, the coming Messiah who was about to enter into these cities, which is what Messiah sent them there for in the first place. Verse uh, 18, and Yeshua said to them, I was watching Satan fall like the lightning from, like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to trample upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in the heavens. In other words, that your names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because of the blood atonement of Messiah, because of faith in Messiah. So here we see, the, and when we, we briefly discussed this passage uh, in Luke 10 in the first session when we looked at Yeshua discussing the enemy's fall, Hasatan's fall from heaven, and we equated that to the prophets where it talks about him falling from heaven, Isaiah. Um, and what we see, as we said in the first week, that the Ruach HaKodesh interacting in our lives, the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh, the mantle of the anointing, is in our lives to restore to us the authority that we have, the dominion that we have over things of this world, right? Death, 
sickness, despair, depression, uh, uh, demonic oppression, demonic activity in the lives of those that we interact with and, uh, and the world around us. We have the authority in the Ruach HaKodesh. We have the power in the Ruach HaKodesh and the Holy Spirit to have dominion over things of this world, which is what we were given in the first place in Genesis. That's what, as we said in the first week, that is what God spoke to Adam. You have dominion authority. I've given you dominion authority over things of this world. We sinned and handed that dominion and authority to the enemy. And with the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh in Acts 2, uh, what we end up having is a restoration of that dominion and authority being given back to us. See, as we said in the first week, when Yeshua was tempted by HaSaitan, HaSaitan said, I have the authority to give all of this over to you. No, he did have the authority, but it wasn't authority given to him by God. It was authority given to him by us because we were given that authority by God. We allowed him to have it. When we sin, when we allowed him to tarnish the work of God in our lives, the perfection of God's creation, we gave him that power, dominion, and authority over things of this world. And he took full, full, full access to it. He took full control of it and had fun with it and ruined the world around us. And so the blood atonement of Messiah, the, the, the cleansing blood of Messiah, the whole purpose was that we could be washed clean, that we could be restored by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh, to be able to have dominion, power, and authority over things of this world. And so what we see here, and I think that as believers today, we miss out on this idea. We miss out on the fact that this is actually a part of what being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh is. It tells us here in verse 17 that these 70 shalichim, the 70 70 emissaries, uh, disciples came back. Uh, It says, then the 70 returned, verse 17, with joy. They were excited. They were ecstatic because they just saw the Lord work through them. They just saw these great things happen. They were excited. Master, even the demons submitted to us in your name. As believers today in the 21st century, we are so far removed from the first century body of Messiah. We are so far separated from the realities of what is actually possible and the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, we are so inundated with 2,000 years of man-made, baseless theology trying to water down or undo or just outright eliminate the power of the Ruach HaKodesh among the body of Messiah, that we don't actually have a way to focus on what is actually available to us and the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh and the authority that is restored to us and the Ruach HaKodesh. There are denominations that teach what is called cessationism. In other words, that the, that the gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh, the activity of the Ruach HaKodesh has ceased. That it was active in the first century in the early days of the body of Messiah, but since then has ceased and no longer works. The reality is, cessationism is true. A hundred percent. Just not the way we look at it. The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has not ceased working. We have ceased trusting in it. We have ceased operating in it. We have ceased believing in it and the way that the Word of God tells us to believe in it. We have told God, just like Israel, oh, things were greater in Egypt. We had things so much easier in Egypt. I mean, sure, there were chains, but at least we were fed. We have told God, oh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I understand. You, you, you literally are living in us now. I got, I got that. You've washed me clean. That's awesome. And you've done all of this that I can shine your light into the world around, into the world around me. I, I, I get it. I understand. That's cool. I'm, I'm with that. Oh, but you want me to do something? I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm not on board with that. Um, oh, oh, you want to empower me to do that? I, I don't think so. That stuff's scary. You know, healing people, that's scary. I don't want to do that. That's weird. When somebody starts walking and they haven't walked, that's, that's weird. I don't want a part of that. I don't want, oh, you mean when their, their arm that's been bound up for, for, for decades all of a sudden stretches back out and has full mobility again? No, I don't want to see that. That's, that's creepy, God. That's some horror movie stuff. I don't want, I don't want that. How about you just, we, we have this nice, quaint, superficial, loving relationship, but uh, superficial, but I, I, don't want to, I don't really want to get into all of that. But the reality is, is all of that is exactly what God wants us to do. It is exactly what God wants us to do. And on the other side of the discussion, there are those who do not believe in cessationism. They do not believe that the gifts and the power of the Ruach HaKodesh ceased after the first century, but instead they believe that it's in hyperdrive. And then you've got people that are jumping pews and holy rolling and screaming that they feel like their flesh is on fire because the Spirit of the Lord is on them or they're drunk in the Spirit and all of this kind of weird stuff. 
But, but look, that's not at all what we see biblically either, anywhere. As a matter of fact, it was an accusation in Acts 2 when the, the, the non-believers saw what was happening among the, the believers. It was an accusation. It wasn't them trying to say, uh, it wasn't them trying to akin the account that was happening to something that they can understand. It was just an accusation. Oh, this is crazy. They must be drunk. The, 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 it wasn't them saying it's likely they're drunk. So this whole drunk in the spirit thing is, is garbage. It wasn't them saying, oh, it's, it's as if they must be actually drunk. They must have had too much to drink before they came to the temple for Shavuot. They must have had... No, it was an accusation. But then when Peter began to express what happened, and all of a sudden the guys that were there, thousands from every tribe and tongue that were there at Shavuot, which by the way is going to happen again, read Zechariah, we will gather for the Moedim again at the temple uh, when, when Messiah returns and the millennial reign's going on. We will, it will all happen again. But here there are men from every tongue, both Jew and proselyte, those that converted to Judaism, that are at the temple. So this whole upper room theory doesn't work either because you can't fit thousands of men there. Um, but they were at the temple in Acts chapter 2, and they hear, they see, they, they understand all of these things that are happening, and it's foreign to them. Because I believe what they heard was those men who were believers in Yeshua, who were impacted with the Ruach HaKodesh, they heard the gospel in their own language from men that do not speak their own language. I don't believe that they heard these men from the Galilee speaking in some weird click-clack language that nobody's ever heard before. They heard the men speaking in their own tongue, a language that they don't speak. And they knew every word and understood, and they went, the only way that this could happen is these guys are drunk. They've got to be drunk. It's an accusation against the Lord. But the reality is, is they were reinstilled with the authority that was given to them. From the foundations of creation, they were reinstilled with the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh. And that's why at the end of this account, after Peter shares the message with those that were there, it says, and thousands were added that day that were saved. Because they weren't afraid. The, 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 the Tamadim, the disciples, when the, the Ruach HaKodesh fell on they weren't afraid like the camps were when they saw these two guys, Eldad and Medad, speaking in, in prophecy as the Ruach fell on They weren't afraid of the presence of the Lord. They weren't afraid of the activity of the Ruach HaKodesh among them. They were energized by it. They were excited by it. They were ecstatic because the Lord was now in our midst again. The Lord had a place to dwell among His people. They knew Messiah came, the Talmudim. They understood Scripture. They understood scriptural prophecy. They understood that Daniel 9 says that Messiah has to come before the destruction of the temple. So if Messiah came, it's not long before the temple's destroyed. Matter of fact, Daniel gives it an exact reference to how many years before the temple's destroyed that Messiah would come. They did the math. They knew it wasn't long for this world that the temple would exist. It wasn't long before the dwelling place, the physical permanent dwelling place that the Lord resided in among His people was going to be destroyed. They recognized that there was now a temporal dwelling place for the presence of the Lord again among His people as it was intended to be with a tabernacle in the wilderness, as it was intended to be for 370 some odd years that the tabernacle rested in Shiloh in, in the north of Israel and in, in Samaria, what we know now as Samaria. It was recognized that the Lord was now dwelling among His people, literally in His people. And it wasn't something foreign because it was something we were prepared for after reading the Parsha every single week. You understand the Torah cycle was established roughly 500 years before Messiah walked on earth. So for 500 years, these dudes that were now empowered with the Ruach HaKodesh had been reading about the 70 elders in Numbers chapter 11 and understood that when the Spirit moves, people start doing things. That when the Lord becomes a part of our lives in a very real and active way, people start doing things. They knew. They were prepared. They understood what was going on. They were not shocked or surprised. It was not some awe-inspiring event other than the fact that now they understood what God's intention was. And then as though reading it in Numbers chapter 11, it wasn't enough. In Luke 10, we get a refresher course with the 70 shalachim, the 70 emissaries sent out ones that Messiah single-handedly chose and sent out with an anointing of his Ruach HaKodesh. I don't think he sent them out there uh, unarmed and unprepared. He sent them out with a portion of his ruach upon them. The same ruach that he operated in, they sent them out with. We begin to see how all of this comes together. We begin to see that the, the impartation of the ruach HaKodesh, it is not something that just... Look, 
A lot of times in the, the body of Messiah, we've had this, these ideas, especially as some of the modern revivals that have occurred. We have this, you know, this notion that we can just breathe on people and people are going to fall out, right? Maybe they do. It's probably because we had too much garlic or something at lunch. I don't know. But, but this, isn't, this isn't how it works in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, the Ruach is placed upon somebody as an impartation. It's not something that just brushes over us. It's not just some wind that comes on and keeps going, but instead it's an impartation. As a matter of fact, quite often in the Scripture, the idea when we talk about the mantle being transferred, the idea is even a laying on of hands for the impartation. Not that it's specifically and only that, but it is a, a direct impartation. It is a transference, if you would. The Ruach HaKodesh doesn't suddenly become less in me because God used me for an impartation of His Ruach on somebody else. Instead, we both are impacted by His Ruach HaKodesh. It is increased among creation. It is increased among God's people. And so here in Numbers 11, we see this impartation. We see this, the impartation of the mantle, the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh from, Messiah, from Moses to the 70 elders. We see the same exact thing in correlation occur in Luke chapter 10 with the impartation, the mantle, the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh was upon Yeshua, upon the 70 Shalchim, the 70 sent out ones, the 70 emissaries. And in Acts 2, we see a grander scale of the same exact event and impartation. See, when the wind blows, it just keeps on going, right? But when there's an impartation, it becomes a part of who you are. It becomes a part of our DNA. It becomes a part of our very reality, our very body. And so what we see with Numbers 11 and, and, and Luke chapter 10 is a direct correlation. We see an exact replica it was a foreshadowing, Numbers 11 was a foreshadowing of Luke chapter 10 of what would happen. And that was a foreshadowing of Acts chapter 2 when it went from a micro scale to a macro scale. When it went from a couple of people to a grand mass of believers and thousands were added that day that came to faith. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, there were those added daily that were coming to faith, that were being imparted with the Ruach HaKodesh, that were being overcome with the anointing of the presence of the Lord. And later in Acts, when Cornelius and the, those of his own family and friends that were in his household, when these Gentiles gathered together and Peter went to preach, the exact same thing occurred there. There was an impartation of the mantle, the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh. It was on Peter that was then transferred and put upon the Gentiles that were in Cornelius' house. And it continued to replicate from there over and over and over and over again for the last 2,000 years. This is the way it has worked, with exception of the fact that within the body of Messiah, we have decided to redefine the way the Spirit of God moves and works and operates, primarily because we still operate in the same fear as the camps of Israel when Eldad and Medad began to speak and prophesy in their midst. See, what's really unique and interesting here is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul recounts, or in, in grander scale, actually sort of um, uh, quotes directly from Moses. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Why is it so important to prophesy? What is a prophecy? A prophecy is something, it's the word of the Lord calling us to repent. It is not just a foretelling it is not telling somebody's future. We're not rubbing some crystal ball or magic eight ball that we shake around and say yes or no or whatever else. It is the word of the Lord calling for repentance. Can there be a foretelling of what will happen? Absolutely. But very often when we see that in scripture, it is a derogatory account. In Isaiah, when it says that the, the walls of Jerusalem will be destroyed, that Jerusalem will be ripped down, that it will be ran over by the Babylonians, it will be destroyed by the men that would come from, all, from nations, that the nation of Israel will be scattered among the nations. The next thing that follows every single time in Isaiah and Jeremiah that those words are given, the next thing that follows is, but if you just return back to the Lord, if you just make the Shabbat, if you just repent, these things will not happen. It is the word of the Lord for repentance. Pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Great commission. Therefore, go unto all nations. A mercy in the name of Father, Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh. Therefore, go into all nations and lead men to salvation. What is the foundational responsibility for salvation to come? It is repentance. Why should we prophesy? The word of the Lord going forth to call men to repentance. 
For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to people but to God. For no one understands but the Ruach, uh, the, the Ruach, he speaks mysteries, the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to people for building up, urging on, and uplifting. One who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but one who prophesies builds up the community. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more than that, you, but even more that you would prophesy. One who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that he, the community may be built up. He says, I wish that you would all speak in tongues. That'd be cool. But even more so, I wish that you'd all prophesy. What is it Moses says? I wish that all would prophesy. I wish that all would experience the Spirit of the Lord. I wish that all would prophesy. I wish the Ruach would be upon all. What is it Paul is saying? I wish that all would, would speak in tongues. That would be great. But I wish that all would prophesy. In other words, all should be impacted by the Ruach HaKodesh to lead people in repentance to the Lord. You know, there are healings that occur. As a matter of fact, we were called as a congregation, a slight um, divergent, divergence here. We were called a rabbit cello, we call it. We were called as a congregation a couple of years back to have a healing service. Um, and uh, And really wasn't sure how it was going to go down, what was going to happen, how we should organize, what we should do, whatever. But, but we did it. I mean, we, we did, and, and I wasn't sure how things would happen. So I called to various rabbis that I know around the, the country that are, I respect and, and admire and ask for advice, and if they had healing services, like how they did it and what was done and, and, and what have you, and, and shared with them. I said, look, the reality is I completely and wholeheartedly believe in the perfect work of the Lord and healing in people's lives. I don't have any doubt that it happens. I've seen it happen when I prayed for people. I've seen people healed through the work of the Ruach in, in me uh, and in other people. I got no problems in, in believing that, but if we put this out there, we mark it, we're having this healing service, and, and all these people come and nothing happens. Like, you know, what do we do? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm an American, I'm naturally skeptical. Uh, and so we, we talked about it, and one of the rabbis said, look, here's the thing, if the Lord said do it, just do it. And so we went, all right, that's cool, we'll just do it, and we'll see what happens. Um, but he said, he said, look, the reality is, is their congregation have been having healing services for, for months on end, and he was telling me about this one guy that came in, wasn't a believer, came in for the healing service, and, and he saw him. He said he's a big dude. It was hard to miss. It didn't matter how many people were in the room. Like, he was above them all. You saw him. Um, and, uh, and he said he walked in. He recognized that he was back there, and he sat in the very back of the sanctuary, but he never actually interacted with anybody. And then at the end of the, the service, at the end of the, the spiel that was given, the message was given, and worship was going on, uh, the rabbi said, all right, anybody that's in need of healing, come down. Our prayer team will pray for you, lay hands on you, uh, and what have you. And he said he saw this guy just kind of sit back there. Never did anything. Crowds are moving. And he said, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he gets up and he walks to the back of the line. And at this point, the line's long. There's lots of people. He walks to the back of the line and, and he waits his turn. And he gets all the way up and finally he gets up to the rabbi. The rabbi happens to be who he comes up to for prayer. And, uh, and the rabbi goes, okay, well, what, what can we pray for? And he goes, oh, no, no, I, I, I don't need healing. So, what in the world did you wait in line for? Why did you? He said, no, you don't understand. He goes, I came in here in need of healing. He goes, I had this massive lump uh, cancerous lump, a tumor on my, on my shoulder. I couldn't lift my arm up uh, higher than, than you know, 15, 20 degrees. I couldn't move my arm. Uh, it was really painful. I was in a lot of uh, trouble. The doctors told me it didn't look good, that things weren't going to hand out well. I was likely going to die. He goes, when I walked in here, I didn't know what to expect, but I came in to see what the Lord would do. He goes, okay, so, so do you need me to pray for, for, for that? He goes, no, no, you don't understand. He goes, I waited in line to tell you I was healed. He said, I sat in the back and I was healed when we were, I was just sitting there. He goes, look, I walked in here. I couldn't lift my arm. He goes, now I can. I can raise my arms and, and so on. And he goes, okay, well, do you know Yeshua as your, your Messiah, as your personal Savior? And the guy goes, no. And the rabbi goes, wait, 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 wait. I've always understood healing was a, you know, related to salvation. You're salvation, salvation, then you're healed, and da, 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 and, and, and what have you. And he goes, no, no, I, I, I don't believe in Messiah. He goes, well, do you want to accept him? He said, Absolutely. And so he led him to faith. And so didn't see the guy for a while. Um, all of a sudden, they had healing service again a few months down the road, and here he comes again. Same thing. He walks in. He sits in the back. He said this time he could tell something was really wrong. Like He was walking weird. He was kind of hunched over. He could see something was wrong. But again, the guy just never came down. And they open up for prayer. And uh, finally, time goes by. He gets up. He gets in line. He waits in line again. He gets all the way down. And he comes to the rabbi again. And the rabbi goes, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, weren't you healed last time? What's happening? He goes, oh, no. He goes, uh, I actually, it came back again. He goes, I actually 
walked away from the Lord. I fell uh, to sin. It came back again. And, and, and this time it's, it's really bad. He goes, it's affecting my posture. It's really bad. And he goes, okay, well, do you need us to pray? He goes, no, no, you, you don't understand. He goes, I was healed back there again. He goes, I'm standing up straight. He goes, when I walked in here, I couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't do anything. Uh, he goes, it was a miracle I walked in here. He said, and, and, but I'm standing up straight now. I was completely healed just sitting back there. And, and he goes, well, do you want to be, you know, want to repent? Do you want to turn back to the Lord? He said, absolutely. He goes, and I don't think I have another shot. He goes, I, I, I accepted Messiah last time after his healing. I walked away from him. He goes, this is it. This is, this is a done deal. And so the Lord can heal people even before they find salvation, oftentimes specifically so that they find salvation. But it's important that we as believers, that we understand that the Ruach HaKodesh is there for us to interact with others that they may find the Lord, that they may find Messiah. Now, as we get ready to close this evening, <clears throat> I've only got about 10 minutes to 12 minutes or so left uh, in our time this evening. As we get ready to close, I want to look at, at one more thing in, in comparison here uh, as we leeway from uh, this discussion of healing and what the Lord can do as His Ruach HaKodesh moves um, to the... And this is where things get complicated. This is where we decide that we're either on board or we're out the way. Right? It's, it's really all there is to it. This is the pivotal point in discussion as we look at the Ruach HaKodesh, where either we're willing to let the Lord do what the Lord wants to do and use us for His purposes, or we just walk away from it, wash our hands of it, and be done, and let God do something with somebody else. Because we got to understand the weight of what it means to be imparted with the Ruach HaKodesh, to be empowered with the authority of the Holy Spirit. We have to understand the weight and the magnitude of what this means. So the next thing we read in Numbers, immediately after the 70 elders and the, and the, uh, the quail coming in and so on, the next thing that we, that we read about, the next thing that happens is chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron, Moses' uh, brother and sister, the Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses on account of the Cushite woman that he married because he had married a Cushite woman. They asked has Adonai spoken only through Moses? What's so special about this guy? Has Adonai only spoken through him? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Notice they don't say, hasn't he also spoken to us? Hasn't he also spoken through us? In other words, there was an impartation of the Ruach HaKodesh, the anointing, the authority of the Ruach that was upon Moses and Aaron. I mean, Aaron and, and Miriam. Now, we know without a doubt on Aaron, we see the accounts with the, the, the anointing of the, the high priest and so on. But there was a, an impartation, a, a portion of the Ruach, the mantle of the Ruach that was upon Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, not just Moses. And we know this because he says, hasn't the Lord spoken through us? And haven't we prophesied because of the Spirit of the Lord? Again, prophecy, not telling, fortune-telling, but, but prophecy and, and calling people to repentance, calling people back to the Lord. Hasn't he also spoken through us? I don't know, I heard it. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone on the face of the... By the way, this is my example of humility. Who wrote the Torah? Moses. Moses says Moses is the most humble man that ever lived. Like, that's my idea. I'm all about that. I'm, I'm just joking. Um, now... Now the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone on the face of the earth, immediately, and we can actually see this, look, I joke around about him writing that and saying, but we can see the humility of Moses because every time Israel messes up and the Lord is going to wipe Israel out, the very first thing Moses does is fall on his face, impeaching the Lord on behalf of the people. Immediately, there's no doubt and there's no thought, there's no missing a beat, he falls on his face before the Lord crying out for mercy every single time. That takes humility. Immediately, Adonai said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the three of you come out to the tent of meeting. So the three came out. Adonai descended in a column of clouds, stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and called to Aaron and Miriam to the two of them steps, and the, the two of them stepped forward. Hear now my words, he said, when there is a prophet of Adonai, I reveal myself in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. In other words, he's telling him, you are a prophet. But here's how I've related to you. And in a second, I'm going to tell you how I've related to Moses. <clears throat> I, when, a prophet, uh, when there is a prophet of Adonai, I reveal myself in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with Moses, with my servant Moses. In all my house, he is faithful. I speak with him face to face. Panim, uh, panim, uh, uh, panim, panim. Uh, I speak to him face to face, plainly and not in riddles. He even looks at the form of Adonai. He sees the physical form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against 
my servant Moses. Adonai's anger burned against them, and he left them. And then we see that the cloud lifts that Miriam is covered in, in Zaharat, in, in what we translate as leprosy. It's worse than that. Um, and, uh, and that's where we actually get in Jewish tradition that Zaharat, leprosy, is uh, um, a punishment for Lashon uh, Hara, evil speak, evil tongue, uh, speaking bad about other people, uh, that kind of a thing. Um, but the reality is here, Adonai says, yeah, no, no doubt, you were a prophet. I've spoken through you, but when I speak through you and other prophets, it's in dreams and visions. Moses, I speak to face to face, like a man speaks to a man. Moses, I speak to differently. I speak through him differently. He has even seen the form of the Lord. He has even seen the Shekinah, the divine glory of the Lord. And we know that at the cleft of the rock, he's covered. He sees the backside of the Lord. Excuse me. Moses and, and or Miriam and Aaron, <clears throat> Miriam and Aaron messed up greatly. And not just because they spoke about Moses behind his back. Not just because they were speaking Lashanara, but they messed up because they misunderstood the weight, the power, the the um, the responsibility, the grand responsibility that goes with being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. The responsibility, it's it's when you have the authority of the Spirit of God, we are held to a different standard. We are held to a different regard when it comes to the Lord. And, and when it comes to messing up, when it comes to sinning, when we walk in the presence of the Lord, when the presence of the Lord resides within us, when it comes to sinning, we're held to a different standard. We're held to a different type of punishment. That doesn't mean that the Lord is no longer merciful or gracious. He absolutely is. But there's a different type of uh, consequence that goes along with it. Think about the number of pastors who have fallen to sexual immorality. There's a grander scale of consequence that goes along with that. Think about the number of lives that were negatively impacted because of those scandals. People that put too much faith in a man to begin with, but the, the negative impact on hundreds and thousands of people because when we are empowered with the Ruach HaKodesh, when we are imparted with the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh, we're held to a different standard. We're held to a different regard. Uh, the, the Hebrew National Hot Dog tagline is probably my favorite, and I think it, it's even more true with us as believers in the, the Ruach HaKodesh indwelling in us. Hebrew National says we answer to a higher calling. The world around us sins all day long. They've got a punishment that's coming if they don't find Messiah, if they don't accept Messiah, if they don't repent for their sins, if they're not washed by the blood of the Lamb. There is an eternal consequence. Those of us who have found Messiah, those of us who are empowered with the Ruach HaKodesh, who are indwelled with the presence of the Lord, who have the authority to speak over things of this world, guess what? Sin is a thing of this world. It's not a heavenly thing. It's a thing of this world. We have the authority to speak over it. We have the authority to avoid it. We have the authority to avoid temptation. And as a matter of fact, we are called to emulate Messiah. And what is it Messiah did? He avoided temptation his entire life. We have the authority. On our own, we don't have the ability, but with the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, we have the authority. And when we sin, we answer to a higher calling. We answer to a higher authority. We answer on a higher consequence. Because it's not just our lives. If Joe Schmo down the road sins, doesn't change anybody's life. Everybody expects them to sin anyways. That's what sinners do. If we sin, it affects a lot more people. Especially in the day and age that we live in today, people see right through you. They see right through the show we want to put on. That's why it's that much harder for the message of the gospel to be shared. <clears throat> because we can preach it all day long, but the people that we, that we preach to, the people that we minister to, they see right through us. They see that what we say and what we do, that how we believe and how we live, they don't match up. We have been imparted with the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh, and we don't even relish it in our own lives, much less impart it and share it with others' lives. We don't walk in it in the way that we're supposed to in our own lives, in our own li uh, ministries, our own families, our own households, our own congregations, our own jobs. When people see us, they should see the Shekhinah of the living God. 
When people see us, they should be impacted by the presence of the Lord. When people see us, their lives should be changed just because the presence of the Lord was in their midst. They shouldn't have to wait till at some point in their lives they finally decide that, oh, maybe they should read the New Testament. They should see the work of the New Testament, the work of grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness in our lives. They should see the work of the Ruach HaKodesh. They should come to us and want what we have. Like I said earlier, I wholeheartedly accept that cessationism exists. But it's not that God has ceased to operate. It's not that the Ruach has ceased to operate in our midst. It's that we have ceased to believe in the operating, operation of the Ruach HaKodesh. We have ceased to allow the Ruach to lead our lives. We have ceased to allow the Ruach to guide our steps. We have ceased to allow the Ruach to move through us to impact lives. We have ceased to allow the Ruach to encourage us to speak healing and life into people's lives. We have ceased to allow the Ruach HaKodesh to direct us to people that need to hear the message of Messiah. We have ceased to allow the Ruach HaKodesh to map out every one of our footsteps day by day. Proverbs says that a man plans his own steps, but the Lord will guide our feet. We seem to have gotten hung up on the first part of that. We plan our own plans, but we forget that the Lord is supposed to guide our feet. And how does He guide our feet? It's by the Ruach HaKodesh, the way He maps things out for us. And sometimes, sometimes those footsteps that the Lord is directing us on are directly into the lives of somebody that needs to see the work of the Lord in our lives. But we have ceased to allow the Lord to plan our footsteps, to direct our footsteps. It's not just whether or not this job or, or that house or this trip is something that we should or shouldn't do. It's not just giving the Lord control and guidance in our lives in the sense of making decisions, but more directly, allowing Him to direct our footsteps for the purpose of His kingdom, for His purposes, for His ways, that we may be used by Him because we are empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. We do have one unifying gift, and that is to prophesy, and I mean a biblical understanding of prophecy, that is to speak the word of the Lord into people's lives for them to repent. Now, that means that we must do it with a compassion, with a grace, with a mercy that we saw from Yeshua. Notice Yeshua sits with a Samaritan woman at the well. Yeshua didn't beat her down because she sinned. Yeshua didn't act like he was holier than thou, and, and he really was. He didn't act like he was holier than thou. He very graciously said, your sins have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. He very graciously called her into the kingdom. He very graciously led her to repentance, or at least directed her in that way. We don't know what happened afterward. God did not call us through the power of His Ruach HaKodesh. He did not call us to bash people because they don't believe the same way we do. He called us to let His light shine in a way that other people want to know what we believe, that other people want to know what we have, that other people want to experience the love and the forgiveness that we have experienced. The question I have for you tonight, and the thing I want us to to start to wrap our heads around as this study continues to develop from here over the next seven weeks. Are we willing to, to wholeheartedly relegate our lives to the leading the Ruach HaKodesh? Are we willing to recalculate and, and realign our, our ideology, our, our, our interpretation of Scripture, our theology, to understand what the Ruach really wants to do among us? See, the children of Israel were scared when they saw the 70 elders prophesy, or particularly the two, two elders prophesy in their midst. They were scared. But they were scared for the same reason they were scared of Mount Sinai. They weren't scared because this was something freaky. They were scared because they heard the voice of the Lord. They were trembling at the core because they heard the voice of the Lord. How often do people recognize the voice of the Lord speaking through us? Versus us telling people what we think the voice of the Lord is saying. The reality is, when the Ruach HaKodesh is upon us, especially as leaders, but when the Ruach HaKodesh is upon us, we are held to a higher standard. It is more important, as believers empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, that we truly walk, not just in repentance once, but for the remainder of our lives. 
that we walk in the power of the Ruach in a way that it changes and impacts other people's lives. And this is why we are spending the time digging through this study on the Ruach HaKodesh so that we understand that there is way more to this than the way we have watered down and damaged the message of the presence of the Lord in our lives over the last 2,000 years. We're living the days of the latter rain and it is time that we grasp how the Lord really wants to operate through His Ruach HaKodesh in our lives. Amen? Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we thank you for speaking tonight. We thank you for revealing yourself in your word. We thank you for making your presence known in our hearts and our lives. We thank you for empowering us with your Ruach HaKodesh, with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray right now that over each and every one of these people in this room, over every single person hearing this recording online, that, Father, you begin to ignite a flame of your presence in our lives. You begin to ignite the power of your Ruach HaKodesh, that you begin to speak through us in words of prophecy calling people to repent because we live in the days in which it is more important now than ever that we call people to repent and to return to you. But Father, teach us how to do so, mimicking and emulating our Messiah with love, with grace, with mercy, with compassion. Father, I pray that you begin to realign uh, our evaluation of how your Ruach HaKodesh moves and, and what your scriptures say about the Ruach HaKodesh. Father, I pray that you begin to move in our hearts and our lives in a new and fresh anointing of your Ruach, that your Shekhinah will radiate from us in a powerful and mighty way. Father, we wholeheartedly surrender our lives to you, to your will and to your way, and to your call to go therefore and make Tamudim disciples of all men. B'Shem in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.